It's the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by the 19 Football Network, and we are live. On this edition, we're going to be looking ahead to Arsenal's home game against Sporting in the second year of the Europa League. We go for the Gunners if they see the Europa League as a priority. We're going to get into all of that on this edition of the show. A big hello to everybody joining us live in the chat. Hope you are good and I hope you are well. Uh, big shout out to Daniel as well um, in the live chat who was uh, preempting how I was going to open the show. Got it pretty much bang on, to be fair. It's just become a habit over the years of doing this show. That's my intro. That's what I do. That's how it goes. Um, maybe I'll make a conscious effort to change it up now. Uh, you've given me a complex about it. Uh, just kidding. Hope you're good. Uh, hope you're all well. Big hello to everybody joining us live right now. Uh, Henry is with us. Peter is with us. Sko is with us. Daniel. Uh, also, Steve uh, Johannes Jakobsen is with us too. Uh, we've got Richie. We've got uh, Ian Wallace. Who else have we got? We've got Wandering Minstrel. We've got lots of you with us live right now. So big hello to every single one of you. Hope you're all good. Hope you're all well, as I say. Um, yeah, Arsenal versus Sporting, the second leg of our UEFA Europa League round of 16 tie, an opportunity to book our place in the last day of the competition. Uh, I guess the big question is how important uh, do you view the Europa League as at the moment, given where we are in the Premier League and given our situation? Um, you know, we're five points clear at the top of the pile. It's not anywhere near where any of us kind of expected this Arsenal team to be. You know, even the biggest optimists uh, wouldn't have predicted Arsenal to be where they are in the Premier League title race. I feel like I say that every week, but it's so bloody true. And I have to kind of remind myself of that when I go into these types of conversations. But, you know, the question is, I guess, and the question I've put in, uh, in the chat uh, as a poll for those of you that are with us on YouTube is, how fussed are you that Arsenal go far in the Europa League? Like, how much of a priority is this to you? Now, nobody's saying that the the Europa League in any way, shape or form should supersede the Premier League. I, I think we can all agree on that as a starting point for this conversation, right? I think we can all agree that the Premier League trumps the Europa League every single day of the week. I don't think that's even a discussion. But there are some people out there that feel we should just bin the Europa League and that we should do um, everything within our power to focus solely on the Premier League and almost push this to the wayside. When I look at some of the predicted 11s or, or the 11s that some people would like to see selected, I look at it and I think you obviously don't care about this competition. And that's a perfectly valid opinion to have. I'm just interested to gauge from you guys, the listeners, how you view this, because I'm a little bit torn on this. I've got to say, um, for me, the Europa League matters, not more than the Premier League, but it matters for a number of reasons. There's a personal thing for me. I don't ever remember Arsenal winning a European trophy. So that's one thing. The other thing is that I believe that Mikel Arteta believes hugely in momentum. And I think he will feel that if his team go off a cliff in the Europa League, have a real setback, a real big disappointment. That could dent our confidence going into the final stretch of the Premier League campaign. So I think in Mikel Arteta's eyes, this is important. Not so important that he's going to pick the first 11, Thursday, Sunday, Thursday, Sunday. But I think, you know, he will feel like he kind of has a squad now whereby he can rotate a number of players. 
and still put out a competent side or a side that is at least capable of going a little bit further in this competition as we stand at the moment. So, um, yeah, um, let's let's kind of see uh, what you guys are saying on that before we dive into previewing the fixture in, in isolation. Junior Gunner says, we must not ignore the Europa. If we don't secure the title, second place in a Europa League uh, would be excellent progress. But obviously the league is the priority. Um, what else have we got? Uh, uh, Patrick says, we need to win the Europa League. So Patrick uh, ranking it very high up. Um, Wandering Minstrel uh, clearly doesn't uh, feel like um, this should be a priority. Uh, Gangle is with us as well. He's just joined us. Uh, Tom says, Man City's win could be huge in terms of momentum for the league on their side. Same for us. Winning breeds winning and we have to keep our high standards. Rotation is key too. Amber E says, I'd say it matters. Our European record is awful. Um... Junior Gunner says this squad should be able to manage two competitions. City have three to contend with. Nobody's really talking about the fact, are they, that Manchester City could win the treble. Like, they they could. It's not beyond the realms of possibility. They've got the squad. We all know that. Um, Sko also says uh, it's good for the 11 to have some rhythm playing together and to build partnerships, plus players get experience, uh, which would be beneficial for next season. Um Christoph says, I think it matters more in the sense that we become uh, acclimatized to competing regularly in Europe. And this year is an important opportunity to create momentum in that direction, i.e. ahead of getting into the Champions League. Um, yeah, Artifacts is winning is a habit. Leeds Gunner. Um, how you doing, mate? He says, um, this one's a little bit off topic, Leeds Gunner. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to save this one. You can favorite them now on this, which is pretty cool. And I'm going to come back to this one later uh, when we do the Q&A at the end of the podcast. So it's a good question. It's a very valid question and it's something I want to talk about, but uh, we'll do it a little bit later on because it will just mean that we go off topic now. So stay with us uh, and we'll get there eventually. Uh, what else have we got? BX Gunner says we've been experiencing heartache since 95. Enough is enough. Let's go out there and do it. Uh, Peter John uh, also says we have a big enough and young enough squad to win both. Yeah, I mean, Mikel Arteta's talked a lot recently, hasn't he, about this? You know, people constantly ask him the question in the press conferences, uh, will you rotate? Do you see this as a distraction? Do you see this as a potential problem in your quest for the Premier League title? And Mikel Arteta has been adamant that if you want to be a top team, if you want to dine at the top table, if you want to be viewed as one of the very, very best, then you need to become acclimatised to playing every three, four days. That's just the way it goes. It's the way it's always been. You know, okay, we've had a few different types of seasons because we had COVID and then we had a World Cup in the middle of the season and we've gone through periods where the fixture schedules have been a little bit more condensed than they would have been in previous campaigns. But ultimately, that thing of having to compete in Europe midweek and then domestically at the weekend, it's always been a thing, you know, for as long as I can remember. So it shouldn't be an excuse and it should be something that we um, learn to cope with as we develop as a team and as a club. If you want to be the very best, you've got to be competitive on on multiple fronts. And and I think Mikel Arteta knows that. And I think now he feels like he's got a squad where he can make four or five changes, sometimes five, six, and still put out a decent side. Now, if you come up against Manchester United in the next round, I'd argue that you can't rotate to the same level that maybe Mikel Arteta did going out to Lisbon. And I think he would... Uh, probably agree with that as well. But 
you kind of got to play it by ear. You got to see where you are. Um, you know, we have got players coming back. We've also got players still sidelined. Eddie and Ketia, uh, we understand uh, this evening, has been ruled out until after the international break. I think I said that to you guys a few days ago that I'd heard sort of whispers and rumours of that. And uh, it's being reported now um, by some much more credible sources than me. So I definitely believe that now. Um, but anyway, look, let's get into this one then. So as we said, the Europa League matters not more than the Premier League, but it does matter in some way, shape or form. Um, if I go over and take a peek at the poll that we put out um, at the start of the show, uh, feel free to vote on this uh, throughout the duration of the programme. The question was, do you care for how far Arsenal go in the Europa League? And 82% of you said yes, which is a lot higher than I expected, actually, just gauging by what I've read on social media over the last few days with regards to this game and the build-up to it and how uh, maybe some people are looking ahead to it. So I think it matters, and I think we're coming up against a dangerous opponent here. I said that to you guys going into the first leg. And when I say dangerous, I don't mean they're better than us because Sporting aren't better than us, right? Let's let's have it right. I don't think the team that Sporting picked the other night um, out in Lisbon was better than the team that we put out necessarily. There are a few areas in which they were stronger, but overall, on the overall balance, I think Arsenal had a stronger eleven. The problem was that Arsenal was sloppy. Arsenal switched off in important moments and Arsenal gave up really, really cheap goals. That was my big disappointment and big frustration coming away from that game. Now, the positive, the silver lining was that we didn't do enough damage whereby you're no longer confident we can turn it around in the second leg or, or that we can progress in the second leg. I, I'm still pretty confident that Arsenal can. And I worry that because we are at home and because we are the favourites in most people's eyes, that if we did fail tomorrow night, uh, Thursday night, that would that would put a dampener on the club, on the team. It would put us in a in, in a weird place going into the Palace game on Sunday, which is essential ahead of the uh, international break. Now, Arsenal have come back from setbacks before this season. That's not to say that if we got knocked out of the Europa League, it means all of a sudden our Premier League title charge goes to shit. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that you don't really want to be going into Palace on Sunday with any doubt. You want to continue the momentum uh, that we've built over the last five or so games in the Premier League where we come back from a difficult period and we've just, you know, we've managed to get results. Now, it's not always been pretty and, and on some occasions we've had a little bit of fortune, you have to say that, but you make your own luck by being persistent, by believing, by going until the very end and Arsenal have shown that a lot in the last few weeks and I think that's why more and more people are starting to believe now that this team do have what it takes to be able to go on and win the Premier League title, even with Manchester City in close pursuit. Now, looking back at the weekend, obviously Arsenal had that 3-0 win at Fulham. Really positive result, really positive performance. The game was done by half-time, which is nice because even if you don't get players off the pitch, you figure and feel that they don't always have to play with the same intensity. That intensity certainly dropped in the second half, rightly so, when you're three goals to the good and you've got your eyes on a game in Europe. But um, Sporting got the exact same result uh, over the weekend, uh, but they were uh, at home, I beg your pardon, to Boa Vista. Uh, so they won that by three goals to nil. Now, if you haven't seen the goal scored by Nuno Santos, uh, which was Sporting's opening goal on the day, go on YouTube, go on Twitter, type it in, Nuno Santos versus Boa Vista. 
an unbelievable goal. I think I tweeted uh, the goal. So if I'm tweeting the goals from an opponent that we're playing uh, in the next few days, then it means it was pretty special and it caught my eye. It was fantastic. Wonderful, wonderful finish. Uh, we know that they're going to be without Sebastian Cuartes and Hidamasa Morita, who picked up yellow cards in the first leg, causing them to be suspended for the trip to Emirates Stadium. Manuel Ugarte, however, uh, who we were told was a big miss for them in the first leg, he will return from his ban. So one midfielder comes in, the other one goes out uh, through suspension. And of course, Cuartes is a big part of their backline. He is missing. Hector Bayerin, uh, as far as we know, uh, is still out. And this is based on what I've read uh, sort of at the time of recording. Uh, Hector Bayerin is still out, so there'll be no return uh, for him, at least on the pitch uh, to Emirates Stadium. But Antonio Adan, the goalkeeper who proved himself to be quite the shithouse um, uh, in the first leg. Uh, he also made some good saves as well. You have to give him that. Uh, he is expected to shake off a muscular injury that kept him out at the weekend uh, to start for Ruben Amarim's side uh, tomorrow night, Thursday night, um, if you're listening in advance. So, yeah, um, that's the kind of the way the land lays. Uh, Mikel Arteta has just given his press conference um, ahead of, of this game. And we're live maybe, what, half an hour after that. I think really uh, major in that. Lots of chat about Julia Roberts as has been the thing uh, over the last few days. If you haven't seen Pep Guardiola's comments after Man City, go and check it out. I mean, has he lost it a little bit? Feels like it. Um, but yeah, anyway, uh, we'll save the Julia Roberts talk. We'll leave that to Pep Guardiola. He knows better. But um, sort of been thinking throughout the day in preparation for this podcast, what team would I go with? And I found this really, really difficult. Um, normally, I'm quite, I'm quite clear on the team that I want to see. And normally, it isn't that debatable for me. You know, I, I can normally sort of put it together in five, 10 minutes. Today, it probably took me 30, 40 minutes to kind of get my head around all the different permutations, who needs a rest, who doesn't, who can afford to play a couple of games in quick succession, which of our players are robust enough to be able to do that with, <coughs> I beg your pardon, without it massively impacting their level. I beg your pardon, going into the game um, against Palace at the weekend, and I've come to some kind of conclusion, but even still, I'm not entirely satisfied with it. So I guess one of the big questions is, what do you do with Gabby Jesus? I don't think that you should start Gabby Jesus personally. I think that he's still got some way to go before I'd feel confident in starting him. The last thing you want is him to be pushed, rushed, and... Uh, and then suffer a setback that keeps him out for any period of time, because this is the most important part of a recovery, right? It's about getting yourself uh, back into shape, back up to fitness and sort of slowly building up, uh, getting those minutes under your belt and getting yourself into a position where you're match fit and you're able to help the team. Now, that's not to say that if we're, you know, down with 15 minutes to go, I wouldn't call on him. That would be a totally different situation. But I think to start him, with the alternative options that we have available, wouldn't make a lot of sense. We've got the international break in which I expect some of our players not to be involved, which they can then have a rest then. You kind of got to say that maybe we're going to put a little bit more uh, of a load on them in the hope that, um, you know, in the hope that they 
uh, you know, that they can get some some rest and and sort of recover during that particular period. There's that. Um, you know, if you think that Eddie and Ketty is going to be ready to return after the international break, then perhaps you can give one of those players that we're sort of highlighting or mentioning, you can give them a break then. I don't know. It's really difficult to know without knowing the ins and outs um, how how this should be managed and, and how Mikel Arteta and his medical staff, who will, of course, be advising him all the way along, are going to look at this. Uh, Charles says, rushed question mark around Gabby Jesus. You don't know his fitness level. Neither do you. And um, th that's kind of the point here. The fact that we don't know much about this guy's fitness level and he's been out for a, a number of months, I think that the natural conclusion to draw having watched him sort of be on the sidelines for so long is that he's not ready having played a few minutes at the weekend to start a game just four or five days later. I think that's an, a natural conclusion to come to. I think that he is probably further down the line than maybe we know and maybe we expected. I certainly didn't expect him to be in the squad for Fulham full stop, but he was. And that's obviously a positive, great, happy days. But I can't, with any degree of confidence, say that Gabby Jesus is ready to start when, as you say, we don't really know what his fitness level is. So I think the, the best thing to do is to be cautious and to be careful because I think this is a game that we can win without him. You know, we, we've it's great to have him back and he's a real key part of this team. And make no mistake about it, as a centre forward, he is at a much higher level than any other alternative or option that Mikel Arteta has at his disposal. Trossard's played well there of late, but he's not Gabby Jesus. Martinelli's played there um, and done pretty well of late, but he's not Gabby Jesus either. You know, Eddie Nketiah certainly isn't. So I think that um, I think that this is this is one of those mindsets that we've kind of got to understand, but also got to be cautious of of getting sucked into. So yes, we know he's better than everybody else, but also. When he got injured, we were five points clear at the top of the Premier League. He's been out for all this time and we're still five points clear at the top of the Premier League. At the very least, that should give people confidence in the fact that we can cope without him. And on that premise, on that basis, and given the way this tie currently sits and given the fact that we're at home, I don't think there's a case to say um, to say he, he needs to start or he should start. I just, I, I'm not, I'm not ready to commit to that. I'm not ready to commit to that. Uh, Kenny says, Harry, you are so English pronouncing Jesus like Spanish. He is Brazilian, therefore Portuguese. So how do you pronounce it then? I thought Spanish was Jesus, not Jesus. I, I don't speak Portuguese. which I'm so English, apparently. <laughs> um, anyway, um, back to what I was saying. So... Racking my brain for ages, trying to figure out what team I'd like to see uh, Mikel Arteta play. And there's a few positions, I think, that are up for debate. So let's do that now. Uh, let me share with you my kind of starting point or, or what I eventually settled on. And we can kind of pick it apart together uh, if you like. So Matt Turner uh, will play in goal. I think that's a given. Um, I personally think that a goalkeeper can play on a Thursday and on a Sunday without it being the end of the world. But I think given that Mikel Arteta has made Matt Turner the cup goalkeeper, if you like, I'd be shocked, <coughs> I beg your pardon, uh, if he doesn't uh, if he doesn't start the game. Got a little tickle in the throat again. 
These kids, man, I swear they make me ill every single week. Um, right back, I'd go with Tommy Asu, I think. Um, I, I kind of talked about the idea. Hold on, before I, before I get carried away with this, let me make this important point. I've kind of looked at what Mikel's done throughout this tournament so far. And I would describe it as half rotation. So one week you'd see Gabriel play at centre-back, Saliba wouldn't. The following game you'd see Saliba uh, playing at centre-back and Gabriel wouldn't. So I think he's going to try and stick to something similar. I think he wants to have one of Gabriel and Saliba in the back line. I think that's very, very important to him. Uh, you can't... Um, you know, you, you can't go into games like this, for example, with Kivior and Holding as a, a central defensive pair. I think that would be throwing the competition. And I certainly, certainly uh, don't want to see that. Um, so, yeah. OK, so the half rotation thing, I think, is valid. I think there are some players that you can get away with playing them more. And there are others that you can't because we know what their fitness is like. For example, Thomas Partey. I wouldn't even dream of starting Thomas Partey tomorrow because I think that's too great a risk. Granit Xhaka, on the other hand, don't want to curse the guy or jinx him, but I feel more confident in him being able to play Thursday, Sunday because his history tells us that he's a more robust individual and he's a more um, or, or he's less injury prone than Thomas Partey, for example. Right. So let me get into the team. Turner will be my goalkeeper. Left back would be Kieran Tierney for me. I think Kieran Tierney would have played in Lisbon. I don't think that Mikel really wanted to play um, Zinchenko out there, but obviously Tierney pulled out. And and I think that Mikel felt he had no choice but to give us uh, a bit of balance on that left-hand side in terms of having a natural left footer there. Some people suggested that maybe uh, Tommy Asu could have played at left back. I'm not a big fan of this Tommy Asu thing at left back. I think... He did a great job against Mo Salah in a one-off game. And ever since then, it just became this thing like every week. Oh, well, the great thing about Tommy Asu is he can play anywhere across the defence. Yeah, he can technically if you really, really need him to. But is he good enough at left back? I don't think he's good enough in the build-up. I don't think he tucks into midfield uh, well enough. I don't think he has the technical ability to play that role well enough. I think he's a fantastic defender, but that's that. Um, you know, that's that's what Tommy Asu is. And, and and I got there was a comment on one of the recent episodes from someone saying that I was really harsh on him and uh, that I'm wrong to be uh, critical of Tommy Asu. I'm not sitting here and saying he's a bad player or that I don't want him in the team or that I don't want him in the squad or anything like that. I just don't see Takahiro Tommy Asu as this complete footballer. I see him as someone who is a very, very good defender. And I actually think there have been recent examples where he's played at right back, got into forward positions and shown us that he's not quite Ben White in terms of what he can do in and around the penalty area. Now, I don't even think that Ben White is the greatest at that in the attacking sense. But Ben White playing at right back gives us that balance that we need to be able to push the left back into midfield, create a system whereby we've got sort of three centre-backs and we can squeeze up the pitch. It's all about balance and it's all about the rotating and moving parts of this team. Um, but I'm going to go with Tierney at left-back in this one. My two centre-halves are going to be Gabriel uh, for sure because Saliba played in the first leg. I think Mikel will do it the other way around. But I can't decide who I want to see alongside him. Now, uh, Jakub Kivior played the other night uh, out in Lisbon. In my opinion, didn't look very good. I didn't really expect much, though, because it was his first game. 
and you know it's it's never easy uh, coming into not just an Arsenal team but a sort of makeshift Arsenal team where there's been rotation and changes. So I don't really want to stick the boot in on Jakub Kivior, uh, but the other thing that you got to factor in here is that he's a left-footed centre back. So is Gabriel. So does that make the balance off? Does that mean? that, you know, he can't play alongside Gabriel. You, then you've got two left-footed centre-backs. And I know that to some people that won't matter. You know, there have been many a good sides over the years that had two right-footed centre-backs, for example. But we also know that to Mikel Arteta, that is a thing. Um, you know, he's spoken about it before. His selections tell us that he doesn't want um, two, uh, two centre-backs of the same foot playing in the side. He thinks that impacts us. Holding could technically play as a left centre-back because he's done that in the past, but that wasn't really under Mikel Arteta. So Mikel Arteta probably looks at that slightly differently. But I think he might go with holding just because of that right-footed element. Um, and he might think that with Tommy Asu alongside him, he's a very good defender, as I say, he might be able to help him out. Moving into midfield, I've gone with Jorginho at the base. I, I said to you guys a few minutes ago, I wouldn't even dream of playing Thomas Partey uh, in this one. I'd go with Xhaka and I'd go with Fabio Vieira. So I'd give Martin Erdegaard the breather. And then my front three would comprise of Reese Nelson on the left, Leandro Trossard on the right and Martinelli through the middle. Obviously, that's quite fluid and that can change at any point. So that's my team uh, that I would pick right now. I'm going to lean towards holding where I've put the kind of stroke there, holding slash Kivior. Um, I lean slightly towards holding because of that right-footed factor. Maybe you could put Ben White in there alongside Gabriel if Mikel Arteta thinks that, um, you know, he can't get away with that but really wants to give Saliba a breather. That's another option. But is it the option necessarily that I think Mikel would choose? I don't know. Really, really difficult to say. Um, in an ideal world, I don't want Rob Holding in the Arsenal eleven. Like, not being disrespectful, I just don't rate the guy. And I think what we've seen over the last year or so is a real development at the back for Arsenal where we're now able to play the way we want to play because we do have two centre-halves who can squeeze up the pitch, who you can drop the ball over the top of. And they have the pace and the physicality and the understanding and awareness of the game to be able to get back into the right positions and prevent us being hurt in those situations. Rob Holding, for me, doesn't fall into that category. I'm sorry. Um, he just doesn't. But right now it is what it is. And if Mikel feels that there needs to be rotation, he is certainly an option. Personally, I, I might have gone for White in at centre-back, but White hasn't played there all season. And you wonder if it will take him a bit of time to kind of get back into that role. I know it's a role that he's played frequently throughout his career, and it's a role that he should, in theory, know inside out. But as I say, he hasn't played there all season for Arsenal. So, yeah. Um, Question marks around the defence. I think for me in the attack, um, I guess the standout point is that I, I think that we probably need to give um, Bukayo Saka a breather. I think he's looked a bit leggy uh, of late. I think he looked leggy at Fulham. Was probably one of the players that maybe underwhelmed on the day. And you don't really want to say that. You go away from home, you beat a good side like Fulham really comfortably by three goals to nil. You don't really want to uh, dig out Bukayo Saka or criticise him. But unfortunately, um, I think he does look like he's running on empty.
Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. The nerds have helped me get smarter about things like planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year, producing a balanced budget, not just for football, and saving on travel because spending less on airfares means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancy dinner too. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast on your favourite podcast app. Future you will thank you. A little bit, and so I would take him out the side. I've put Trossard in there, who obviously had a huge, huge impact at the weekend, but I'm also mindful of the fact that he's just come back from an injury and was ahead of schedule in his recovery. So are we then loading him up too much by playing him? I guess Emil Smith-Rowe is the other alternative, the other option. Um, I mean... I mean, he just doesn't look fit enough at the moment. I don't know if that's changed or improved over the last couple of weeks. Obviously, we haven't seen a lot of him in first team action. That'll be a decision for them to make based on what they've seen on the training field. Um, but I can't say that he's ready to start a game. And it's annoying because, again, like like others, he's been out for a long, long time. Talent is clearly there, but you know he's got to apply himself a Mill Smith, right? It might take him a bit of time to get up to scratch, but right now he just doesn't look at it. Um, and and so for me, he's not really even uh, in the conversation, which is um, which is a bit of a shame. It really is. Um, let's take some of your thoughts and questions on this. Uh, Dial Square says, Harry, I get what you're saying about holding, but with so many changes in defence, at least holding needs uh, knows the system thoroughly. Yeah, but does he really understand? It, it, wait, let me let me reverse a minute. It's not really about him understanding what Mikel Arteta is asking him to do. I think he's an intelligent enough lad to be able to to get that. I'm not really worried about him understanding the system. As you say, he's been around the club for a long time. He's been with us throughout the duration of Arteta's tenure. He'll know exactly what it is the manager requires from him. My question is, does he have the skill set to be able to carry that out? And I don't think he does. Um, I don't think he has the pace to be able to play as high up the pitch as Gabriel and Saliba do and get away with it against a very dynamic and very um, potent forward line. Because make no mistake about it, Sporting have got a lot of talent in the forward areas. I think they're a little bit weak defensively. I think that their midfield is not quite as dominant as maybe it should be. That might change with Ugarte returning, but then obviously Morita is out now, so that weakens them slightly there. But their front three is, is what I look at and think danger, danger, danger. That is the concern for me. And I just don't think that holding is is up to it, you know. Um, if he does play tomorrow, I hope he proves me wrong and I hope he goes out there and puts in a really, really good display. But we need to move past players like Rob Holding, in my opinion. Now, I know you can't do that overnight and I know that circumstances will dictate whether that is something you can get away with. But yeah, I just, I'm not sure about him. And there is a question mark for me over that centre-back position uh, going into tomorrow's game. Uh, Rehan says, um, that is exactly the lineup I would pick, except I'd play Odegaard just to get the job done. Um, Odegaard obviously missed the first leg through illness, so he, he was able to sit that one out, but it wasn't really a rest if you're ill. So, um, maybe Mikel will, will feel the same, but yeah, um, we're gonna have to wait and see. I, I think there's been signs from Fabio Vieira of late that he's getting better and better, and I like him in that position. Um, when he first came, I wasn't really sure 
what his position was. Couldn't work it out. Wasn't sure if he was an eight. Wasn't sure if he was a winger or someone that would start from wide. More of an Emil Smith-Rowe type winger, if you like. Um, starts from a wide position, but naturally looks to drift inside. Then I wondered if he was the next in line for the left eight position uh, that Xhaka plays. But I think if you're going with Jorginho in midfield, you need Xhaka because you need a bit more physical presence in the absence of Thomas Partey. So I think the balance has to be right there. And I think Vieira in that right-sided half space seems to come alive a lot more than when he plays on the left. I've been a little bit underwhelmed by him when he's played on the left uh, of the midfield. So, yeah, stick him there for me. See how he does. You've got Odegaard in reserve, right? And and when I'm picking this team, I'm mindful of the fact that, um, you know, we will probably at some point in the game have to make changes. You know, if we can get the job done with, with that lot, fantastic. But if we can't, you want to have the Partes, the Odegaards, um, you know, the Sackers. You want to have those guys available on the bench, the Salibas, to be able to call upon. And I think um, I think that Mikel will do that. I think he will have them in reserve and have them waiting in the wings um, should things go south. Robbie says, hi, Harry, stateside fan. Appreciate, enjoy your balanced content. Mikel Arteta has built a solid sense of belief and identity he can give more squad players the chance. Uh, big shout out to you, Robbie. Thank you so, so much, mate, for your kind words. Really, really appreciate it. And uh, love to all of our stateside uh, listeners, because I know there's a fair few of you. I think I was looking at the statistics the other day uh, on the podcast, not necessarily on YouTube, but I think on the podcast, we were at around about 28, 29% is US-based listeners, which is unbelievable. So, um, yeah, big thank you to all of you and a big shout out to all of you. Uh, Diego, oh, all the kind words are coming in as well. Uh, it says, wonderful work with the podcast, Harry. I listen to every episode religiously. Thank you so much. It says it's a mood booster. Good. Um, good. Thank you, mate. And um, hope you're well too. Okay, so that's my team. In terms of a prediction, I'm going to go with a 2-1 Arsenal win. I think that Sporting are going to score. Um, I don't think this is going to be straightforward. I think that they're going to come there and, and and view this as a cup final, straight up shootout. The away goals thing doesn't come into play anymore. And they will fancy their chances, based on what happened last Thursday, of scoring. They will fancy their chances of hurting us defensively um, or hurting us offensively from their point of view. And I think they'll come out and they'll, they'll take the game to us. I don't think they're the type of side really that can sit back too much. Um, there'll be periods when they have to, because I think we'll be in control. But I think they'll always be looking to move the ball forward quickly, get into the attacking areas and allow the likes of Paulinho and uh, Marcus Edwards. You know, they, they've got so much talent in that front line. I think they will cause us problems. So I'm going with Arsenal 2, Sporting 1. That is my prediction for this one. Uh, going to take a very, very brief pause. And then I wanted to talk Kieran Tierney for a minute because... There are some stories doing the rounds about him, and I just wanted to share uh, my opinion and views on that. Uh, and then uh, we'll do some Q&A, so don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast, which is part of the 90 Min Football Network. OK, um, let's uh, let's do this Kieran Tierney bit then. So uh, the Scottish international has found himself sidelined very, very often this season. And that's not because he's a bad player. It's because Alexander Sinchenko has been huge. He's been fantastic for us. He's brought uh, the ability 
to uh, dominate midfields. He's brought the ability to play the inverted role to a much higher level than anybody that we have within the camp. He has been, uh, he's brought leadership qualities, uh, as I say. When you factor all of that in, it's, you know, you can understand why Kieran Tierney's been left on the sidelines. And going into the season, people would have asked the question, you know, why did Mikel go out and bring someone in who was going to play left back when he had Kieran Tierney available? And the truth is, as I've said before, this is not anything personal to Kieran Tierney, but this is a guy who has been injured so much over the last few years. It would be naive and irresponsible, in my opinion, to have ignored the fact that his injury history is a big problem. And because of that, can you really, when you're trying to build something, go into a season and be 100% confident that he's not going to cause you an issue based on his absence? You know, Mikel Arteta has been burned by this on a number of occasions during his tenure at Arsenal. There have been times in the Europa League where we've had to play Granny Xhaka at left back, and we all know how that went. So I think Mikel looked at Zinchenko and went, yeah, you know what? You're the exact profile of player that I want. You're the exact profile of player that I think I need to be able to play the way that I want to play. And you can come in and you compete for a place. Uh, you can compete for a place both in midfield and at left back, but primarily at left back. Because the beauty about what Zinchenko does is the reason he gets the space he does and, and finds the pockets he does is A, because he's an incredibly intelligent player and has a wonderful footballing brain. But B, it's because he comes from that position. So if you're a midfield and you line up against Arsenal three versus three, one of you's got Odegaard, that's your task. One of you's got Xhaka, one of you's got Partey. And then all of a sudden, the left back just appears. Well, is your winger going to come inside and defend the fact that, you're, that the opposition left back has gone inside? I think a lot of teams look at it as a way of actually creating some space on the right. And I think we've, we've had problems with that at times where people have got the ball out to that position early. Zinchenko has been in field and Gabriel's had to come across and defend. And that takes me on to why Gabriel is so important, because there are very few centre-backs, I think, that could do that role right now covering essentially two positions a lot of the time. But it's a bit like when I talk about how fullbacks get forward and do it effectively. It's because you're not accounted for. When a team sets up defensively, you are not accounted for. Not as a priority anyway. So if you then get into those positions, you are an extra body, you are an added bonus. And that element of being unaccounted for is what gets you that half a yard of space that you need if you're good enough to be able to do the damage. So the same can be said for Zinchenko, who on paper is a left back, but spends most of his time in field. Kieran Tierney just doesn't do that to the same level. So that's the footballing reason, the number one reason, in my opinion, why Kieran Tierney's found himself on the sidelines. And the second reason is that Mikel probably feels that based on what he's seen over the last couple of years, he cannot trust this guy to be available week in, week out. And I think that worked against Kieran Tierney when Arsenal were looking at a new captain as well. The best ability is availability, as they say. And it's Sod's law that Kieran Tierney's been available much more frequently now because he's not, you know, when he's not been playing. But then the counter to that is, well, that's probably why he's been more available because he hasn't been playing. Therefore, there hasn't been as many opportunities to pick up 
the types of knocks that keep him out for a little while. Also, stylistically, it doesn't really fit right now. And so the conversation has been brought up today because there are reports that Kieran Tierney has been talking to Mikel Arteta about his future. Based on what we know about Kieran Tierney and based on what we know about Mikel Arteta, I'm calling bullshit. I don't think this is true. Um, that's no slight on anybody that's reported it. Um, you know, reporters, as I always say to you guys, will report the information that they're passed. Now, if the information that they're given is no good, that's on the source, right? And and as the, the best journalists manage to, over time, weed out the bad sources and, um, and et cetera, et cetera. But if you get given some information like that, you will feel a responsibility to report that. And I completely understand. But I don't believe given how focused Arsenal are at the moment, how Mikel Arteta operates, that he is sitting there having conversations right now with Kiarantini about the summer. They might be having conversations about how Kiarantini can work his way back into the team, his situation today. But I do not believe for a second that there are talks ongoing about where Kiarantini is going to play his football at the start of next season. I do not believe that for a second. Not only do I think that Mikel Arteta would never entertain that, I don't think Kiarantini is the type of character to go in and cause that kind of friction or raise that type of issue in the middle of a title race and in the business end of the season. So I just wanted to highlight that. I, I, I'm not saying that I'm, I know better or that I'm in the know or anything along those lines, but I just don't see that as being, um, as being true. And I think a lot of the time when it comes to football rumours, you, you have to just apply the common sense check uh, at the start. And um, and when I run this one through my mind earlier in the day, when I read it, something just didn't didn't work. Something just didn't click. And therefore, I don't believe this. But that's just me. Right. Um, let's get some of your thoughts. Let's get some of your questions from the live chat box. There's a fair few of you with us at the moment. So uh, feel free to get involved in the comments. Uh, we've got one question already lined up that I favorited earlier on. So I'll make sure I do that one as well. Uh, but just quickly, there are nearly 300 of you with us live right now across the multiple platforms, just 67 likes on the board, 68 now. Um, nowhere near enough. We want to be at least over 100 by the time the show ends, guys. So please leave a like on the video, subscribe to the channel if you're new. And if you're listening on audio, leave us a review, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts. I've been asking over the last few episodes and I've seen a load of reviews come through. So let's keep that momentum going uh, for a podcast that gets as many listens as we do. I can't believe how low we are on the ratings thing. I've never really pushed for that. And I think I need to because I think that helps us uh, in the iTunes charts as well, where we're constantly uh, in the top 30 football podcasts, which is amazing. So let's um let's let's pick up on the reviews that would really really help i've seen a few of you have done them recently thank you for that uh let's get a few more on the board right let's take this question then from leeds gunner that he put uh, to me earlier on uh, i just parked this one because i thought that it would uh take us on a tangent at a time where i wanted to get on with the lisbon preview but it's a very good question and one that i definitely want to touch on he says hey harry you were great commentating on palace first of all thank you for that very nice of you. Uh, he said, did your opinion on Sambi change after seeing him in Palace colours in the flesh? Is he worth a second chance? So I'm not going to go as far as saying that my opinion has changed of him. I still think that there is a play. I've always thought there's a player in there 
but Arsenal wasn't really where we were going to get it out of him. You know, I, I think he's someone who's very, very confident on the ball when he's feeling confident, but when he's not, uh, it deteriorates really, really quickly. It's almost like his confidence is built on a house of cards. And if you blow it down, his confidence falls off the edge and and he struggles to build it back up again. Patrick Vieira is, um, is an incredibly good man-manager. Now, I know he's getting a lot of criticism and a lot of stick at the moment for the league position that Crystal Palace find themselves in, the fact that they haven't won a game since at the turn of the year, the fact that uh, I think they managed no shots on target in their last three Premier League games. I understand why he's under the microscope right now. But there was a little moment, and I, I don't even know if I should really say this, but I'm going to do it anyway on here. Um, there was a little moment at Selhurst Park on Saturday, finished commentating on the game, and at Selhurst Park, what happens after the game is that you're up in the commentary position and you make your way down to the bottom of the stand. And in between the stand that you're in and the Holmesdale Road end, in the corner, that's where the tunnel is at Crystal Palace. And what you're asked to do when you want to interview the managers for radio, et cetera, et cetera, is to make your way down into that corner and stand in the tunnel, basically, until the managers come through. And it's quite an interesting place to be because often the managers take a while to come out, especially after a defeat. And what you end up seeing is all the players coming out for their warm downs. You know, got a little fist pump from Erling Haaland. And I was thinking in my head, don't you score another bloody goal? And then he scored five last night. Um, you know, Eze came over. Like you, and you know, you you get that little bit of interaction with the players, especially when it's at a club that you work at often, they get to know you. Um, it's great. And and Patrick Vieira came out and uh, was very kind enough to give us an interview, particularly given the backdrop of stuff uh, with the BBC and all of that, um, you know, as everybody knew at the weekend. He was kind enough to stand there and speak to us and um, was very honest, I thought, in his assessment. We finished the interview and I was walking back towards the press room to collect my things. Uh, was about to head off and I saw Michael Elise, who obviously conceded the penalty, uh, standing to the side, kind of waiting for Patrick to come through. He had his hood up um, and he was waiting for him. And when Patrick went over, Michael Elise went up to him and put his arm around him and said, boss, I'm so sorry I let you down today. And you could see that the player was visibly upset with the fact that he'd given away that penalty kick. This isn't a young man who doesn't care. Right. This is a young man who knew full well what happened and knew that in a lot of ways, you know, Man City might have broken the deadlock at some point anyway. They had all of the ball. They were just starting to click into gear a little bit before the goal. They were up in the tempo bit by bit. Maybe they'd have gone on and won it anyway. But Michael Elise apologised to Patrick Vieira for the fact that he was having to answer questions about relegation and his job, etc. And Patrick put his arm around him and said, You've got nothing to be sorry for. You know, we win together, we lose together. Um, you'll learn from it, et cetera, et cetera. And at that moment, I just looked at Patrick Vieira and I thought, you might not be the best tactician in the world. For what it's worth, I don't think he is. You might not be um, a genius coach with an incredible philosophy and all of those things, but you're a, a wholehearted, decent bloke. And those players out on that pitch, despite the fact that they're missing results, there's, you don't look at Crystal Palace now and think that they're not playing for him. And the reason I've gone around the houses on this story and, and circled back to Sambi is because I think Sambi needs someone like that. He needs a manager who's got the time and the patience 
to put his arm around him and give him what he needs. And for me, that's not Mikel's style necessarily. He can be a little bit cold. He can be a little bit um, to the point. Patrick Vieira is more of a man manager than a system manager. And I think Sambi's benefiting from that. I was impressed by him in that game. I didn't think he was amazing, but he looked competent and he looked comfortable and he certainly held his own against a very, very good Manchester City midfield. But has my opinion changed on him generally? No. I still think that his future probably lays elsewhere at this moment in time. But at the worst case, as I've said about a number of players that we've loaned out, you will get some money back for him in the event that he is sold later down the line. Um, so, yeah, I've gone around the houses, but it was a really good question. And I wanted to share that story because I do think that um, that there is a good fit there between the Congo and Patrick Vieira at the very, very least. <clears throat> right. Uh, let's see where we are on the likes. We're four short of the 100 target. Let's push the target up to 150. Come on, guys. Uh, Yomi says, who do you think is a more is more suitable for the long-term Partey replacement? Rice, Zubimendi, Caicedo, or someone else? So I'm going to take Zubimendi out of there. Um, I think he's a fantastic player, technically superb. But I'd question whether he'd have the physical power, speed, um, mobility, to be able to play that lone six role that Thomas Partey currently plays. So then if I move on to Rice and Caicedo, I think physically they're more of the right mould, but are they technically as good as Zubimendi? No. But I think what you need in that position is a bit of everything. I don't think, like, for example, Martin Odegaard is a technical genius, but that doesn't mean he could play as a lone six. Zubimendi is fantastic technically, but I don't think he could play as a lone six. I think there are, I think Jorginho is a good example of those types of players that I'm sort of putting Zubimendi in the bracket of, who on the ball are superb. But without it, unless they have ample cover around them, they can be exposed. And I do think that of Zubimendi. I think he's fantastic, but he'd be an eight for me rather than a six. So then I narrow it down to Rice and Caicedo. Um, and I think Caicedo's ceiling is higher based on what we've seen of him so far. But Rice is ready now. And you would probably feel more confident paying 70, 80 million pounds or upwards of that for Declan Rice than you would for Moises Caicedo now. And I said this at the time, you know, when we were linked with him in January and when that was a thing, you know, yes, you know, first we had it with Mudrick, then we had it with him. And we did go with big bids to try and bring these players in. But we were going with crazy offers, if we're being honest. Like, if we're putting our hands on our hearts, can anyone really make the case that Moises Caicedo right now is worth that money? No. You could argue that Declan Rice isn't worth that money either, but Declan Rice has more to show for his career so far because of the, the age thing, because of how long he's been in the Premier League. So it would feel like a safer investment. But in terms of stylistically, I think both Rice and Caicedo would be better fits and good fits for that position. But it depends on a lot of factors, doesn't it? It really, really does. Um, right. I think I'm going to, I'm going to take one more from Mobe Guna and then I'm going to love you all and leave you all. And, uh, we'll be bringing you obviously the post-match player ratings from Emirates stadium. Um, that'll be tomorrow night after the full-time whistle, the, uh, the reaction podcast to sport in Lisbon might be a little bit later on on Friday morning because I'm flying out to Paris 
on Friday morning to um, to go and do some work on the CAF Champions League again uh, as a commentator for a couple of days. So I'll be out of action. I'll be back on Sunday morning, though, and I'll be heading straight to Emirates Stadium from the airport. So uh, I'll be back in time for that. Content plan doesn't change for the Crystal Palace game, but there is a chance that I don't get to do the sporting uh, review tomorrow night because of how late I'm going to get back and I've got to be out of the house at 4 a.m. So there's a chance that I'll do that uh, probably mid-morning um, on Friday once I've arrived in Paris um, and I'm lonely in the hotel all by myself. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, let's take this question from Mo Beguno. says, hello, Harry, you think we'll sign a new left eight or do you think we could move Emil Smith-Rowe there given the amount of left wingers we have at the moment? I think Mikel Arteta looks at Emil Smith-Rowe as a potential eight, but I think the eight has to be defensively sound as well. Um, and that might not necessarily mean the same thing to everybody, but like Martin Odegaard, incredible presser, really, really good presser of the ball, really good at getting back into the sort of right-sided spaces and helping out. I don't think that Emil Smith-Rowe has that. He certainly doesn't have the defensive awareness that Xhaka has in terms of covering the left back and tucking in alongside Partey when needs be. And I think that awareness that Xhaka has is a big reason why he personally on an individual level has improved dramatically, but also why Arsenal's balance is so good at the moment. I don't think Emil Smith-Rowe plays as an eight for Arsenal alongside um, Martin Odegaard on the other side. I don't think you can have both is the point I'm making. Odegaard is more like a 10 playing in an eight. And because we've got a 10 playing on the eight on one side, we've got a player that is half a six playing as an eight on the other side. And the balance just works, if that makes sense. Granit Xhaka will tell you himself that he's always viewed himself as a defensive midfield player. So because he's got those instincts, but he's also got a decent bit of technical ability about him, he can play a hybrid between the eight and six in order to give us that balance when we need it, but also get forward and help us when we need him to. On the other side, you've got Odegaard, who's more a 10 than an eight, but plays an eight because he's got the technical ability, but the work rate as well. So for me, I always talk about this. When you're talking about partnerships, when you're talking about midfield trios, when you're talking about sections of a football team, it isn't always about the best individuals. It's about the best balance. I think that's so, so key. And I don't think if you put Emil Smith-Rowe, for example, in the place of Granit Xhaka, we'd have the right balance. If you put him in the place of Martin Odegaard, we'd have more of a balance. But I still don't think he brings the same level to the table from a defensive standpoint. And that would concern me. So I've gone around the houses again, as I tend to do. But the answer for me is not right now. I'm not convinced of that right now. Let's have a quick check in on our poll before we say our goodbyes. Uh, 250 votes on the board. Do you care for how far Arsenal go in the Europa League? 84% of you said yes. I'm glad because I thought I was the only one uh, that was um, that was uh, interested in the Europa League and progressing. Um, I thought that a lot of people kind of just dismissed it in their own minds, binned it off essentially, and, uh, and were fully focused on, uh, of course, the... Um, Premier League title race, which is going to be interesting as well. But anyway, um, I'll leave you guys to it. Uh, thank you all so much for tuning in. As always, don't forget to leave a like. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to leave us a review if you're listening, especially 
on Apple Podcasts. I'll see you all very, very soon. Uh, if you're a member on Another Slice, uh, look forward to our player ratings coming up tomorrow night after the game. If you're not a member on Another Slice, what are you doing? Um, I'll see you all very, very soon. Until next time, take care. Goodbye. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.